Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? Our intent is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the issues and challenges surrounding COVID-19 testing and diagnostics and how healthcare professionals are navigating those. Here to cover that are Dr. Angie Caliendo with Brown University and Dr. Kim Hansen of the University of Utah. Both are IDSA board members and specialists in diagnostics and testing. Dr. Caliendo, let's start with you. As you know, there are more than 20 testing options currently approved by the FDA and states have been given authorization to develop their own tests under independent systems. That said, why then is availability so limited? So each company, once they receive their emergency use authorization, needs to scale up production. And um, we are consuming so many more tests during this COVID outbreak than these manufacturers can produce. If you think about influenza season when we need a lot of diagnostic tests, the companies have months to prepare for that, know there's going to be a surge in the need for their tests and so they can ramp up their production. This, they're really starting from ground zero. They have to design the test, get the test through the FDA, and then ramp up their production. And then once they start doing that, there still is this preferential um, distribution of tests to hotspots, which is totally appropriate. And so areas of the country that have cases but aren't considered a hotspot still are having difficulties acquiring enough reagents to run tests. And many labs are running multiple tests um, to get around this, to see if they bring in two, three different platforms and they get some reagents that, that for each of the platforms that they'll be able to raise their total testing volume. Thank you for your insight there, Dr. Caliendo. Moving to the next question. There are now multiple tests available to help determine if a person has been exposed to the coronavirus even without showing symptoms. What then is the current state of diagnostic and serologic coronavirus diagnostic testing in the U.S.? Dr. Hansen, I'd like to get your take on this. So maybe I'll take that question in two parts, um, because when we think about the tests that are available for coronavirus now, as you mentioned, they're the tests that um, detect the virus itself, and these are largely nucleic acid amplification-based tests. And then there are tests that um, are designed to detect a person's um, response or previous, previous exposure to the virus, and that's, those are antibody tests. Um, so first for the nucleic acid amplification-based tests and what is the current state of diagnostics, um, we've talked a little bit on this podcast already about all the different manufacturers now that have EUA-approved tests and how there is some geographic variation in uh, availability of test reagents. I'd say the other thing that is limited um, access or widespread testing with the nucleic acid amplification-based tests is uh, shortages as well that seem to come and go with collection devices. So the availability of the swabs, the availability of the transport media, the availability of the tubes um, that you put the swab in to send to the laboratory. So that has um, affected uh, availability and it's an ever-changing issue. Um, On the other hand, on the serologic side, um, the FDA has taken two different pathways with serologic testing. One is companies can 
submit their assay to the FDA through this emergency use authorization um, mechanism that's been the same for the nucleic acid amplification-based test. And those packets come with a lot more information about how the test performs, at least analytically. Um, the other pathway, though, for serologic testing with the FDA has been the FDA telling diagnostic test manufacturers that you need to establish um, accuracy and efficacy in your hands, but FDA doesn't need to necessarily see that data um, because these tests may be designed not solely for diagnosis, but to augment um, diagnosis. So I think when we're talking about availability of the serologic test right now, there's only one that's been EUA approved. There are many others that companies are marketing um, that haven't necessarily gone through the FDA process, and we know a lot less about um, how they perform. So I think it, it's falling on clinical labs to, if they elect to bring uh, a serologic test um, into their laboratory, to really vet some of the test characteristics uh, on their own. Um, what is the specificity of the antibodies? Does it cross-react with um, other um, potential viral illnesses or folks who've been exposed to coronaviruses in the past? Um, of folks who have a diagnosis of, of COVID-19 based on the nucleic acid amplification test, how many actually have antibodies detectable in their blood and in what time frame? So we're still pretty early on in the process, I think, of, of figuring out a lot of those questions for the serologic testing. Um, there are a lot of different tests out there, and clinicians need to know um, if their lab is offering one, um, how well um, has it been vetted? What do we know about um, sensitivity and specificity. Um, and I think the other message uh, with the serologic test um, that the ID physicians are uh, clearly uh, aware of, but uh, other providers may not be, is uh, just because we detect an antibody um, that suggests someone has been exposed to um, SARS-CoV-2 in the past, we don't know, necessarily know does that mean that they're immune um, are they protected? Could they be reinfected? And so we still have a lot to learn, I think, about um, what uh, detecting an antibody at any given level really means in terms of immunity and protection. Certainly a lot of challenges there, Dr. Hansen. Thank you for that. Dr. Caliendo, I'd like to come back to you now. Why do we see differences in test performance, accuracy, and result time? We've always seen this with um, these uh, molecular assays. Um, if you look at the assays that we have used in the past, no matter what pathogen we're going after, I'll, I'll use flu again as an example. We've known for years that if you look at 10 different um, manufacturers' tests, that they do not perform exactly the same. They all have little nuances, each of the methods, each of the primer pairs that could be used in the assay, what the collection device is, how much is the specimen diluted before it's added into the reaction. So there are just a lot of very nuanced changes, differences in these assays that at the end of the day impacts how they perform. Another uh, consideration is the time to run the assay. You can run assays for short periods of times and, so, and sometimes you'll lose sensitivity when you do that. So we have known for a long time that if you develop many different molecular assays for a given pathogen, that they're not all going to have the same performance characteristics. What we don't know with the assays we have right now is how they actually compare to each other. 
we have a lot of literature on other viruses where we've had tests for years, but when these tests come out this rapidly, uh, it's, it, we don't have the data to say one test performs this way versus another test. Um, that is all information that we're gonna have to gather over the coming months as these assays are used uh, more widely um, in laboratories. Staying with you, Dr. Caliendo, we are seeing higher false negative results with some tests. Are difficulty of sampling and quality specimen control, particularly as they relate to drive-through sites, contributing to these false negatives? That's a very interesting question. And, and there are like three general characteristics that we should think about when it comes down to what, how does a test um, how accurate is the result of a test? One is the overall test performance, which I alluded to earlier. Not all of these tests are going to have the same analytical sensitivity. So when you put them out into clinical practice, they're not going to have the same clinical um, sensitivity. So that's one issue. Second is the quality of the specimen um, that you collect and the, and the site of the specimen that you collect. So your example about drive-through is a very interesting one because if you go into the hospital and a healthcare professional collects your nasopharyngeal swab, they've likely been doing this for a long time and know how to collect it. They go deep into your nasopharynx and they get a good sample. If you go to a drive-by and you hand a patient a swab and say, stick this up your nose as far as you can, they're not gonna get it up there very far before they realize it's uncomfortable. And so it's just a natural reaction that they're not going to be able to take that swab as deep into the nasopharynx as a, a healthcare provider would or someone who's, who's trained to collect these specimens. So you're not going to get, potentially you're not going to get as good a specimen as you would if it was collected by um, someone who was trained to do that. And the third thing that will impact the performance of the test and the accuracy and getting false negative results is where you are in the course of infection. If you're very early in the course of infection, there just may not be that much virus in your respiratory tract yet. And so even if you collect a good specimen, the amount of virus could be less than what the uh, assay is capable of detecting. But if you wait two or three or four days until the symptoms worsen and the amount of virus increases, then you're more likely to get a positive result. So there, there are multiple factors that contribute overall to the performance and the accuracy of the test. Thank you for going over those, Dr. Caliendo. Dr. Hansen, you touched on this subject earlier, and I'd like to come back to it. How are testing material shortages, for example, swabs, media, test tubes, et cetera, impacting testing capacity at your and your colleagues' institutions? Yeah, so the material shortages have been a, a big issue for us, and it's literally a moving target that varies day to day and week to week. Um, last week, we were about ready to run out of swabs. This week, we got um, a shipment in with 25,000, so we're feeling pretty good. Um, but I think this is a, a very similar story that I'm hearing from colleagues, not just um, in our region, but around the country. And I think, you know, different um, institutions have taken different approaches to this. One is potentially to pool resources. So um, in our city, we have an academic medical center, a larger um, private hospital system, and our local and state health department. And we've really worked to, to share resources um, as is possible. Um, that's been uh, something that's worked for us, both in terms of swab availability, but the other uh, limiting reagent has been 
that some of the nucleic acid amplification tests, although when you, when you purchase it from the manufacturer, they give you the part that can amplify and detect the virus, but not necessarily the part of the test that's required to get the virus out of the clinical sample, sample kind of purify it, concentrate it, and then put it into the test. So those are called um, extraction reagents. Those have been limited at times. And we've also, um, in our town, uh, tried to share those uh, as much as possible. Um, I think the other sort of innovative things that are happening around supply shortages are um, people are looking at you know, alternative ways to, to collect a specimen. So I know of colleagues um, and diff different uh, health systems looking at 3D printed materials um, in place of swabs. Um, we and others, for example, have also um, validated just normal saline as a transport media in place of universal or viral transport media specifically. So people are getting creative um, to address the shortages. They're difficult to predict. They vary minute to minute. And I think they're, when possible, kind of sharing resources across uh, a hospital or health system and even within a region can, can really help get needed testing out to the community. Dr. Hansen, I'd like to talk about how hospitals and health systems have been coordinating with state and local public health departments to implement contact tracing and limit community spread. Those seem to be top of mind right now. I can speak to that mostly from uh, the laboratory side. I can say, and this would be true probably for all clinical labs, that um, we report uh, all of our positive test results and all of our negative test results to the health department. Um, we coordinate the lab response uh, with them for the region. So um, patients can access testing a variety of different ways through the community, either the health department or another clinic or academic medical center. Um, we try to coordinate with them to make sure we're covering as broad of swath in our geography as possible. And if any one center is overwhelmed with samples to try to share and distribute testing amongst different um, laboratories, um, I'll say from the laboratory perspective, that's really how we've um, coordinated. Um, in terms of the contact tracing part, um, I know at least in our um, region, in our state health department, has really reached out to the medical center to look for volunteers to be trained in um, more of the um, on the ground uh, contact tracing um, efforts. I think it takes a long time to, to train an epidemiologist to do contact tracing on the ground, but our health department has gotten um, creative about forming teams with a lead who's well-trained and is overseeing the work of volunteers, um, either from the medical center, medical students, other volunteers with a, a background that would be compatible with epidemiology to get them out and to do the contact tracing um, after we report back the positive uh, results to the health department. Thank you for that perspective, Dr. Hansen. Dr. Colliendo, how does testing capacity differ among different institutions? So that depends on the individual laboratories at any given hospital. What are they capable of doing? What expertise do they have in molecular testing? What platforms do they already have in their laboratories um, that as these emergency use um, authorization tests mm -hmm. come through, the test is available and you're like, oh, I have that platform in my lab. I can, I can get that test up and running relatively quickly. Or 
I don't have that platform, so I'm gonna wait and see if one of the platforms that I have in my lab already, tests be, are available. And that varies from lab to lab because labs have varying degrees of expertise. Some labs rely more on what we call sample in, answer out, where there's not a lot of processing and not a lot of steps involved. And you can run these with less highly trained individuals. You might be able to run them in the middle of the night. Other laboratories have the ability to do testing that's more labor intensive, more complex. So depending on what, what um, skills your laboratory has and what platforms your lab has available, that will impact on, on your approach and how you think about testing. And this is really important when you think about academic medical centers and our community hospitals. They both need access to testing, but how they're gonna go about that will look different um, depending on what skills and what platforms they have and what experiences they have in, those, in their laboratories. I'd like to follow that up with, what is the most effective testing strategy to deal with the current emergency? I think that testing as broadly as we can, symptomatic individuals to see who actually is infected and then quarantine them appropriately. This is the, this is the goal that we all have. You know, our governor keeps saying, we live in a relatively, not a relatively small state, we live in the smallest state in Rhode Island. And she wants to drive our testing volume to a thousand tests a day so that she has enough testing to know who's infected and then who can be quarantined. And I think this will help decrease the spread. It, it has worked very effectively. If you look at what uh, they did in South Korea, they really rolled out testing aggressively, able to test a large uh, number of patients and get people quarantined and separated. And this may also be part of the strategy that's going to be behind getting us off out of this social distancing that we're in now. Is there a way if we can have broader access to testing and we can use it appropriately to know when it's safe um, for certain people in certain circumstances to, to um, come out of social distancing? Is there a way we can apply lessons learned from other countries' testing and containment regimes to COVID-19 and future pandemics? Oh yes, absolutely. I think there will be many lessons learned um, across the world and in this country. As I, the example I gave with South Korea is a good example. I mean, you can see how effective it was for them to, to very quickly be able to roll out testing and then to act on those results. This pandemic is gonna be a very interesting lesson um, to remind everybody the importance of public health infrastructure in this country. And um, we're learning a lot right now. We won't have time to reflect on all of it in the heat of the pandemic. But once this is all over, I think it will give many of us in the field um, an opportunity to step back and say what went well, what didn't go well, and what would we do differently um, if and when this happens again. I'd like to direct this last question to both of you, and it might be too early to address this, but what are the next steps when discussing COVID-19 diagnostics? Dr. Hansen, let's start with you. Well, we've talked about the importance of um, ideally uh, testing broadly all um, individuals who have symptoms that could be consistent with um, COVID to put them in quarantine and then initiate contact tracing. I think one of the things we still don't understand and we're starting to learn more about is in that contact tracing, um, is there a role for um, nucleic acid amplification testing in asymptomatic contacts of a confirmed case? And if there is, what's the optimal uh, timing that that should be done? 
Um, will that help us identify um, asymptomatic shedders that could also be quarantined? Um, what could be the role in using um, the antibody-based serologic diagnostics that we were talking about um, as a part of a contact tracing strategy to really try to, you know, reduce um, transmission potentially from folks with mild or um, asymptomatic symptoms after uh, contact with a, a known lab-confirmed case. Um, the other thing we're struggling with, and I think we need to be wiser about, is deploying testing to more rural areas, to underserved uh, populations, to the homeless, um, how to really make sure we're, we're testing broadly in congregate settings like prisons and nursing homes. I think that's been on a lot of people's minds. Some areas have been better at that than others, um, but that's where we are now in our state um, is really trying to, to mobilize and, and get out to other locations for um, identifying cases and quarantine uh, of patients who really just don't have access to come in to our testing centers. And to follow up there, what will the biggest challenges be here? I think uh, the availability of the test kits, um, the availability of the collection devices, and then um, creativity about um, mobile units that can go out uh, and test and the cost and infrastructure that's required to do that. Dr. Caliendo? I think we need to learn a lot more about how these tests compare to, one, to each other. One of the things I hope to get out of um, data that we hope to get out in the future is if, if we look at these 24, 20, whatever tests that are have EUA approval, um, how do they do? How are they clinically? How are they performing clinically and how do they compare to each other? And I think this will be very helpful. And then moving forward, understanding are some of these tests better performers than others? And if COVID, um, if, if uh, SARS-CoV-2 continues to circulate for years to come, what are the, what's the best uh, platform to use to, um, to make that diagnosis? I think we still don't understand the best specimen type and is there flexibility around um, the ideal specimen type. So I think there needs to be more work um, done in this area. Is there a way to get a self-collected specimen such that it would perform nearly as well as a specimen that was collected in by a, a, a provider in, in, a, in the emergency room or in the hospital? I also think we have a lot of work to do on serologic testing. Um, what is the timing of the um, formation of antibodies? Um, how good will these assays be in seroprevalence studies? And um, as mentioned earlier, will having an antibody response protect you from future infections? And then finally, once the, uh, the pandemic passes and there's no longer a national emergency, the EUA goes away and those tests won't be available. They'll have to be brought back through the FDA through the regular process, which involves a clinical trial. So hopefully these companies who are manufacturing these tests for us now are also running clinical studies so that when the pandemic passes, that they can put these tests through the FDA and get clearance for them so that they remain on the market permanently. And I bring this up because we saw this with H1N1, uh, the 2009 pandemic, that once the tests were, were out there for EUA and then the EUA expired, companies had to go back and, and get them through. And we have a lot of 
um, highly multiplexed assays out there that maybe SARS-CoV-2 needs to be a part of into those into those multiplex panels. And so how do we get that work done efficiently so that we have a lot of options left on the market, you know, back, let's say down, down the road months from now when we're no longer in the pandemic, there's no longer an emergency situation that we still have access to these tests. At this time, I'd like to open the floor. Dr. Hansen, Dr. Caliendo, any last thoughts for us? It's been so inspiring to watch um, my colleagues in infectious diseases and other subspecialties of medicine really come together and address something that in my lifetime I never would have guessed um, I would experience. So I, I think it, it's been stressful and it's been hard, but it's also um, been rewarding in a lot of ways as well. We still have a lot of work to do, um, but I, I'm so proud of my colleagues and the role that infectious diseases clinicians have played um, in the response. I, I would say that there is such a sense of we're all in it together, that it's so rewarding. I feel that at my own institution, regardless of what specialty people are in, that we know we have to surge up and, and figure this out and work together. But also I think IDSA is really bringing the members together in various ways and it really does feel like it's a team response and that nobody has to be superhuman and nobody has to know everything. That there are resources that are being provided to us so that we can make the best decisions. I think that the challenge that we have right now is incomplete information and every day new information comes out and our job and our responsibility is to make the best decisions we can that day with the information that we have. And then, no, we're going to change them as we learn more. And I very much feel that process is going on, and it's going on in very much a team effort, which is extremely satisfying and very rewarding for all of us. At this time, we'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Angie Caliendo and Kim Hansen. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next week as we invite another diverse panel of medical experts to discuss the latest developments on the pandemic.